Guidance Full Gospel Church. Hi, my name is Josh Chalmers, and I am the Academic Dean here at Eston College. I am so glad to be with you today. And uh, before we get into things, I thought I'd just introduce you a little bit to my family. I have a beautiful wife named Laura, who I met when I was a student going to Eston College here. Oh, getting to be a long time ago. And we have four daughters, and we live right across the road from the college. Uh, it's quite a wonderful life, having given almost half my life now. I've worked 15 years here at the college, and I came here for four years as a student. So it's been quite a journey here, and uh, it's exciting to see the good things God is doing through Eston College. Uh, fun facts for you. Uh, Brian Callowert was one of my first co-workers, and I know he's an important part of your church. Nick Modio, who is your lead pastor, was one of my very first students in the Romans course that I taught as a mini-semester. So I have fond memories of that, and as you can see in the picture, uh, he was a bright keener sitting right in the front. <laughs> uh, just give you a little update about Eston College. Uh, the college is doing phenomenally in terms of finances, um, especially because of the recent uh, blessing that ECO has been. So ECO stands for EC Online. We're planning to try to bring Bible school to people who can't come to Bible school. We recognize that not everybody can give up eight months of their life and move to little Eston, Saskatchewan. So we're gonna enter the modern 21st century and start bringing Bible school online so that launches in September. The goal is that we would have 10 courses ready for launch. And wonderfully, your pastor, Pastor Nick, has actually prepared one of the very first courses that will be part of launch. And his content is just awesome. So we're thrilled to have him part of ECO. And uh, yeah, really quite excited about this initiative. It's one of the main things that I'm doing here at the college now. So how it works, it's going to be like Netflix, where you pay 25 bucks a month and you'll have full access to all the courses. Uh, it's got lots of video content and interactive stuff. It's going to be great. We're, we're really looking forward to, to sharing this. Also, if you haven't heard about it yet, uh, we're doing this parables Bible study with your church as well as other Christians who are joining together online on Zoom. And so that's another thing that we're glad to partner with you. So I expect by this point we will have met some of you face-to-face -face over Zoom. Anyway, let's get uh, focused our hearts now on Christ and on the Word. I know you've been in a series on Jesus's I am statements, and today we're going to look at another one of those. My goal is to talk about the significance and weight of Jesus's words when he said, I am the light. So as I was reflecting on that phrase, when Jesus says, I am the light, I had quite a few stories that came to mind, and some of my most memorable stories come from spending time with my brother-in-law, Brad. Uh, do you have a person in your life who is like this? Um, like, who always, every time you spend time with them, they're just bored of sitting around and they want to go do something absolutely crazy. So I remember one time, uh, Brad and I had climbed, we, they live in Nanaimo, BC, so there's this mountain that overlooks the city called Mount Benson, and it's this beautiful mountain. Uh, it only takes about two and a half hours to hike up or so. 
and we'd done it quite a few times, but, but Brad, it, it wasn't challenging enough for him anymore. So what he wanted us to do was to climb it during the night. So he called it midnight hiking. So we left the house at midnight, and then we brought some flashlights. And let me tell you, hiking at nighttime in the forest up a mountain is quite a bit different <laughs> than hiking during the day is. Um, I would not do that gladly, especially with my four little girls uh, ever again. There's a reason people don't regularly practice midnight hiking. Every breaking twig in the forest. I know there's not lots of bears in this part of BC, but uh, it was absolutely overwhelming. Uh, your senses are just on high alert uh, when, you're in the, when you're in the dark. It's, it changes your atmosphere quite a lot. Uh, to go further and elaborate on the kinds of things Brad likes to do, one of his other favorite activities at this stage in our lives was called extreme caving. So extreme caving means, as you can maybe guess, we go into a cave in the dark. We're not allowed to bring any lights except our uh, digital cameras. Back then, you know, you had a digital camera with a flash. And extreme caving meant every 10 steps or so, you were allowed to flash your camera and light up the cave. So until you had that flash, you were in utter darkness. And just being in the pitch black is not an experience that's very common uh, for modern people anymore. We are so used to having lights at night in our bedrooms. Um, I read this Popular Mechanics magazine a few years ago that said the average home had something like 30 to 40 little LED lights uh, just blinking or flashing or just on all the time during the night. So our homes are not dark. and. And outside isn't really dark. It's hard to, hard to see the stars properly unless you're really rural uh, because of all the light pollution. I don't think we really can put our minds into the space of an ancient person uh, when the Bible was written and recognize how differently they would have thought about darkness and light because the darkness isn't truly our enemy like it was for an ancient person. Um, especially now, everybody's got their flashlight in their pocket attached to their cell phone, right? So if you've ever been in extreme darkness, pitch black, um, we recognize just how necessary light actually is. Light is essential for life. Have you ever imagined what life would be like without light? Uh, first, let's think about it from a physical perspective. Uh, light and fire go together. Without fire, we have no heat. And as Canadians, we know we couldn't survive without our furnaces humming away in the background. We take them for granted. We take warmth for granted. And the light and the warmth go together. But one of the things I want to talk about today is how um, light isn't all good. If there's too much of it, if there's too much heat, too much fire, then of course, in extreme cases, light becomes a danger to us. My parents pastor in Slave Lake, Alberta. And I guess it's probably about 10 years ago or so, the big fire swept through Slave Lake and burned down my parents' church. It was really quite a terrible experience for me because, you know, I'm hearing about this fire on the news and I'm really worried about my folks because they don't know who's made it out. And at, at first, deaths were being, like casualties were being reported from the fire. And we didn't know 
uh, the reality of, of who was alive and who was dead in the city. And I had to like live through that, that traumatizing moment of, are my parents dead from this fire? Uh, fortunately, only one casualty happened and, and it was a rescue worker. Um, and it, it wasn't really a direct result of the fire, but more so an accident. Um, it, it, was, it was just something that took the community a long time to recover from. Uh, I remember my dad saying, it feels like now after the fire, everybody has something in common that we can talk about. And it gave you an open doorway to talk to folks and just have a, have a visit. Like, where were you when the fire happened? Or, or, but, but are you understanding, um, if, you've, if you've lived through kind of a fire, how dramatically it changes uh, your relationship to fire? Um, when my mom was a girl, she, she actually escaped a burning house. And so she's always been terrified of fire, like every mother is, don't play with matches. But as a boy, <laughs> my brother and I were a bit of rascals and, and we thought it was fun. We, ha we got this like little like blowtorch lighter for Christmas one year and my brother thought it was really neat to take ping pong balls and light them on fire with this sucker. So what happened one time is he lit the ping pong ball on fire in the basement and it, of course it's too hot to keep holding so it pops out of his hand and rolls underneath the couch. So I'm just running around like a maniac trying to put this fire out. I'm like going into the bathroom. I get the garbage can from beside the toilet and I'm trying to like scoop water out of the toilet. But, but my garbage can is too big to fit in the toilet. And anyway, in the meantime, my brother had moved the couch and stomped the fire out. Yeah, of course, my folks had just gotten a brand new white carpet. So there was a permanent scar from that uh, little disaster. Uh, to make matters worse, it was Christmas Day, um, and we got these little lighters for Christmas. Um, and to make matters even worse, we were actually uh, both adults at this point. So some people just take a long time to learn how dangerous light can be <laughs> when we measure it at the extreme end um, and, and not put the fire in the fireplace where it belongs. What about this? Uh, take from a different angle the idea of photosynthesis. Photosynthesis comes from two Greek words, and they are light, like photo or photon, and synthesis, to put together. And so photosynthesis describes the process of how plants take the light from the sun and turn it into energy. It's absolute miracle that this is possible for a lot of reasons. One of them is just that, do you know how far the sun is away from the earth? Because According to my research, the sun is 145 million kilometers away. If it moved closer or further away, uh, photosynthesis wouldn't be possible. Not just that, uh, we would freeze or we would fry. We kind of live in the Goldilocks zone, just right, just in the middle between freezing and frying. And it's an absolute wonder that we're able to be alive at all. So did you hear it again? Too little heat, too little light, and we can't survive. But too much is also bad for us, dangerous. It's almost as if uh, light uh, we need in moderation, could we say? Too much is just as bad for us as not having it at all. So let's talk about light from a different perspective now. The next perspective I want to talk about is the idea of light in terms of our like emotional life. So, how many of you can imagine what it feels like um, to go through a really dark season? Uh, we use this metaphor of 
of walking through the darkness or when a person's depressed, everything around me is just darkness. And, and you know, like for kids uh, trying to fall asleep at night, how many of you have fought with your children? Daddy, just leave the door open a crack. Like they don't want to be in the dark. The light brings us comfort. And so it's no wonder, um, you know, Psalm 23 is, is read at funerals. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And, and just this sense of shadowy darkness uh, and its association with death, it's no wonder that we're afraid of the dark. And, you know, we tell our children there's nothing to be afraid of in the dark. But as adults, when we go through depression or we walk through a dark season, uh, those are the metaphors we turn to. The darkness is our enemy. So we, we can't have too much light and, and we can't have too much darkness. We need something right in the middle. Um, think about light again from a physical perspective. As Canadians, you probably have been advised at some point to take vitamin D daily or to get out in the sun. Uh, you live through these dark, cold winters. And again, talking about my parents up in Slave Lake, it's kind of a joke to me. They get a northern allowance because they don't get as much light up there. Um, so they get paid by the government to live, you know, just a little bit higher up. I don't know if, if you uh, know anybody in that situation, but I feel like I would like a northern allowance just for living in Saskatchewan. Uh, thank you very much. So all of this, uh, like, meditation on light and its importance, how much of it we need, how, how too much is bad for us, and, and too little also is bad for us, like, sets us up with a pretty good platform for thinking about light in the Bible. I kind of want to walk through like a thematic like trajectory of light in the Bible. So to get started, um, the, you know, just open your first page of Genesis and we find God talking and light seems to be associated with his very voice. It's the very first thing God says, let there be light. God is associated with light. His very, his very words produce light. And so light is, is characteristic of what God is like. You know, I feel powerful when I can say, Alexa, turn on the light. But God's voice doesn't just turn on the lights. God's voice actually makes the light. And, you know, if you've ever studied other ancient religions or you, you've done some like Greek mythology or you've even like researched where the days of our week come from, ancient people on average, they worshiped the planets, they worshiped the sun. So like Saturday comes from Saturn um, because when they looked at the heavens, these bright lights were the most powerful thing they could imagine. It was incomprehensible to think that there was something beyond the sun the sun was the most powerful thing. And so the emperor of Rome was associated with the sun god or thought to be the son of the sun. Um, same with Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, the, the association with the planets, with, with the sun itself, um, they, they thought of the planets as the most powerful thing. But the Hebrew people, the, the people of Israel, their god is not someone who's associated with the planets. Rather, he's above and beyond them. He's the cause of the planets. So right from the first page, uh, Genesis presents a different vision of power and what it means to be 
um, in charge of creation, not just the product of these uh, planets or, or, or the sun, but the one behind them who made them, who spoke them into existence. If you continue thinking in your mind about the story of scripture, the next time light appears uh, is in Genesis as well, but this time it doesn't bring life into existence. Instead, it's separating people from God's presence. What I'm thinking about is after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, an angel with a flaming sword is placed at the entrance. And this flaming sword has been depicted in art. I want to show you a picture here. Uh, this, this flaming sword is designed to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of God's special relationship and presence with him. And already we're seeing that light becomes the enemy of humanity, not a safe place, but a place that divides us and separates us from God's presence. If we jump a bit ahead in the story now, the next thing that pops out for me in, regard, in regards to light is the burning bush scene. So as you can probably remember, when God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, his first words are like, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground. And there's almost a veiled threat there that if you don't obey me, this light will burst out and strike you down. That it's somehow dangerous to be in God's presence just casually or, or without regard for the sacredness of what we're experiencing. Again, like there's this recognition of the frailty of humanity that, that we can't handle being in God's presence. Interestingly, again, when you're thinking about light in the biblical story, the next thing that stands out to me is the pillar of light or the pillar of fire that helped guide the Israelites when they were in the desert. And this pillar symbolized God's presence above the tabernacle, that it hovered above the place that was the hotbed or the hotspot of where God's presence uh, chose to dwell. And again, when we think about what it means, um, God's presence was obvious and tangible in light, but it was not accessible. People couldn't go into the tabernacle without fear for their life. And it's obvious that the light, again, is too dangerous for us to just uh, be immediately exposed to it. I think I heard a pastor say one time, it's almost like God's glory or his light is toxic for humanity like radiation and that we need like a shield to protect us um, just as you would going into a nuclear waste site where there's radiation present. And this becomes really evident when God's glory is revealed to Moses. Uh, it's, it's shown to Moses, remember Moses requests that he wants to see God's face and God grants his wish but not all the way he basically says, look, you can't see my face and live, so I'll put you in the cleft of the rock instead, and then I will let my back pass before you. And isn't it amazing how, like, when, when Moses encounters God in the story, the light is, like, contagious. It actually reflects off of his face, that when he spends time in the presence of God, he becomes like a mirror. And so he has to put a veil over his face, because afterwards— the people are afraid. Um, it's almost like Moses becomes like a little 
mirror or, or image of what God is like. And finally, before we leave Exodus, uh, thinking about this theme of light, at the end of the story, when God's presence in Exodus 40 comes and fills the tabernacle, one of the things that's really interesting to me is, is how even though God's presence has made himself completely manifest, and again, there's light and there's power and there's glory here, but the Moses himself, the one who has been in God's presence, the one whose face is shining like the sun, he can't even go in because the light is too dangerous for him. It's, it's impassable. He can't, as a frail human, he can't handle too much of God's light. Well, what's interesting, and, and coming to the words uh, that Jesus spoke, I am the light of the world. What, what we want to talk about today is the context in which Jesus spoke those words. So, according to John, um, Jesus spoke these words during or around what we call the Feast of Tabernacles. And the, the Feast of Tabernacles represents this time when the people of Israel would remember their time in, ex in Exodus in the desert, where they would remember having to build little huts um, in the desert as they were nomadic people. And, of course, naming it after the tabernacle, recognizing that God's presence uh, existed in the midst of their, in their desert life, in the midst of their desert camp. And for centuries, what, what the Feast of Tabernacles included was they had four giant candelabras that were set up in each corner of the courtyard of the temple. And each of these was said to be 75 feet tall. And when they lit these, this was what some of the ancient sources said. The temple would shine like a diamond, and they would light these every night during the Feast of Tabernacles. Supposedly, a woman could sift wheat by the illumination of these lights from the temple in any courtyard in Jerusalem. All of this uh, festival was associated with trumpets and dancing, and it was just a very exciting festival. But I guess in some ways it was sort of sad because as it ended, um, there was this realization that, that God's presence had not returned to the temple. This is one of the tragedies of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is sort of a story waiting to be finished because when they rebuild the temple after they return from exile, the, the terrible sad fact is that after, um, unlike the tabernacle where God's presence filled it and Moses couldn't enter, when they rebuild the temple, God's presence doesn't return. And so it's kind of anticlimactic. And, and remembering and waiting for God's presence to come back in the way he had once back in Exodus uh, just fills the Jewish mind with a tension of, of desire and longing for things to be as they used to be. Do you ever hear old-timers talking about revival and, and longing for the glory days of when God used to move? I think that's sort of similar to what the Old Testament feels like, especially as you end the story, that there's this longing and, and hope for God's presence to come and fill the temple with, with dramatic glory and, and manifest light and beauty. So in the midst of this context where, you know, they've got these four beautiful candelabras just lighting up the whole city, Jesus comes along and says, and just, just feel the weight of that with all this stuff happening in the background. He says, I am the light of the world. 
but light in the in the Jewish mind is is associated with God himself so it's no wonder then that people interpret this as if Jesus is making a claim towards Godhood that he is associating himself with the light that should have come and and filled the temple if that's so it's no wonder that people want to kill him as a result of of these kinds of statements Jesus is is associating himself with God in a way that that is dramatic and and over the top or or completely uh, you you can't make that kind of claim unless you can show that you truly have that that kind of light so then it makes you think if you're an astute gospel reader if you've been reading the gospels for many years you should think well well does Jesus ever reveal himself with the same kind of dramatic light and then if your mind jumps or, or like leaps towards the transfiguration where Jesus and Moses and Elijah are on this, this hilltop, the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is transformed and his, he's like shining like the sun. And Moses is there and Moses, the one whose face once shone with glory, and Elijah, the one who, you know, could call fire down from heaven they are both there worshiping Jesus. And then, of course, Peter is like, well, let's build some little huts or, or tabernacles to house this glory. So I, I always wonder in my mind, like, why didn't Jesus manifest this kind of light? Instead of just coming into the temple yard and saying, I am the light of the world, why didn't he come in and, say, and, and have the Mount of Transfiguration happen publicly? Not like if Moses had showed up in the temple with Elijah, it, and it wasn't just, you know, Peter, James, and John who got to see the Mount of Transfiguration. Wouldn't that be evidence that Jesus was truly God? Well, I guess the thing is, and this is something I've been mulling over lately, is if, if Jesus had pronounced himself with such definitive proof that he was God, would, would it require any faith on our part? Um, I I wonder what it would be like if Jesus were still alive today. Say he had not returned to heaven. Um, would that require any faith on my part? Well, to be a Christian, if, you know, there's this man who's 2,000 years old, what would he be doing? And, and wouldn't we just get bored of that, that guy? Um, of course, if he were going around doing miracles and everything, but, but at some point it feels like we would take this light for granted. But, but maybe even more importantly is that Jesus came for a short three years to teach us something, to teach us kind of not just that he is the light, that he is God, but to teach us how that we, like Moses, that our faces could one day shine. So the thing that I want to say to you is, as we, as we kind of close off our message today, is... The point of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, is actually so that it can redirect itself through us. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Um, I love this, this idea that it's like an angled mirror, that the light of heaven comes down and bounces off of us and reflects itself into creation. Um, I often tell my students, what does it mean to be a Christian? And this comes from C.S. Lewis. It means to be a little Christ. The point, though, is 
we can't be like an image of what Christ was like of, or of Moses' shining face unless we know the light. You can't be the light until the light sort of comes inside of you and is safe for you because too much of Jesus' light will destroy us. So I think this is why 2 Corinthians 3 verses 12 to 18 talk about how Jesus is, is like um, the veil that protects us from God's powerful glory. And it talks about in that context, Moses had to put a veil over his face. But now we don't need that anymore because Jesus is, is the new veil that actually becomes like the shield I need, that protects me from my frailty, that allows me to come again into the tabernacle, into the temple, that I actually now am no longer afraid of that flaming sword that keeps me out of God's presence. Let me end with a couple of thoughts. I don't know if you've heard of Surrey Nano Systems, but they recently have been famous in the media for creating this uh, paint that absorbs 99.96% of, of the light that is shone at it. And so it, it creates like a vacuum or a void. When you look at it, it's like a black hole. It sucks in all the light and, and doesn't reflect anything back. If you go to their website, you can look at like pictures of how when they paint an object, so they have the same object, that, like this, this face that's a bust, and then the same one over here that's painted with their, they call it Vanta black paint. And the one just looks like a flat surface because when, without light bouncing off of it, it doesn't reflect any light. It stops reflecting light, so there's no visible depth. I think this is an interesting metaphor for our lives as Christians. Do you ever think to yourself, do I reflect any of God's light? When people look at my life, do they see anything of what God is like? Or, or am I too ashamed, like, like Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount? Do I too easily put a bowl uh, over my lampstand? Uh, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? The point is, if we come to know the light, it's almost impossible for us not to reflect the light. And so one more story about my brother, brother-in-law, Brad. Um, one, one time I was out there visiting, and, and they live a block from the ocean. So he said, Josh, you have to come ocean swimming with me at night. I'm like, I don't want to go swimming in the ocean at night. I can barely swim in the day. But he's like, no, he's insistent. He's like, there's something special that will happen if you come. And so he, he, he shows me on Google this thing called bioluminescence. What it is is there's a certain algae bloom that happens at certain times of year that uh, when, when you stir up the algae in the water, it creates a chemical reaction that causes light to start flowing out of the algae. So it's amazing. That's why it's called bioluminescence. It's light that's created by, by life, bio. And we went swimming in the water and, I, of course, bang my legs in the rocks and come back with bloody shins. But it was worth it because it felt like a Disney movie. You know, it's just absolutely unbelievable. Uh, if you've never experienced, this is, this is like you're running through a field with butterflies and, and it's in slow motion. It, like this, it's that kind of moment where you realize the beauty of God's nature. Uh, again, I, I think about this metaphor and I ask myself, if people stir up the water of my life, what will they find? The good news is I don't have to like try to manufacture this light. The gospel comes and says the light has moved inside of me. It's no longer 
my job to try to light the candelabras and, and draw people's attention to Jerusalem. Instead, if you are a Christian, what it means is you become like Christ. And if Christ is the light of the world, then you too will shine as you get to know him. And that's where the fruit of the Spirit comes. It, it grows in us. And, and maybe you just feel like there's a little flicker of light in your life today. We just ask the Holy Spirit now as we close that he would blow on the embers of our hearts. Jesus, would you just come? Would you make your light so real in our lives that not only our neighbors, but we ourselves would be awestruck again by the glory of the gospel and the beauty of who you are? We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness today. Thank you for a dried and full gospel. I pray a special blessing be upon them. And would your anointing and your Holy Spirit just flow mightily in their lives today. Again, I remind you, church, you will never be the light until you know the source of the light. Have a great day.